Welcome to the Yes Collective podcast. The Yes Collective is an emotional health studio run by the best therapists and psychologists around. Our team focuses on cutting edge approaches like internal family systems, somatic therapies, authentic relating, and trauma-informed experiential group practices. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook to learn more. I'm Justin Wilford, PhD, Director of Content and co-founder of Yes Collective. And each week I join my host, Jenny Walters, licensed therapist and co-CEO of Yes Collective to bring you the most amazing cutting edge therapists, psychologists, coaches, and other leaders in emotional health. Thanks so much for joining us and be sure to subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts. Maybe you've seen a 60 Minutes episode or a Netflix documentary on the emerging science of psychedelics and mental health. Or maybe you found your way into a psychedelic assisted therapy session or a retreat. Or maybe psychedelics are a totally uncharted territory for you. Regardless of where you're at on the spectrum, you're going to love this conversation with Dr. Alicia Wooth. Alicia is a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in Denver, Colorado. She did her internship and postdoctoral fellowship at a major children's hospital. And she's also on the executive team here at the Yes Collective. A few weeks back, she had the opportunity to attend the largest psychedelic science conference ever held. It was called Psychedelic Science 2023, and it had over 12,000 attendees, thousands of them were therapists, and 500 speakers over a full week in Denver, Colorado. The biggest names in the field representing Johns Hopkins, MIT, UCLA, Stanford, and countless other research institutions were there alongside celebrities like Aaron Rodgers and Jada Pinkett Smith. It was, well, it was quite an event. So Alicia joined me on this episode to talk about her experience, to talk about the science, what she learned, how it changed her views on the rapidly expanding world of psychedelic science. And we dig into it all. We dig into the data, the presentations, all the details in the science. We dig into the culture and also the practice of using psychedelics for mental and emotional health. And then we dig into what's on the horizon for the Yes Collective in this space. So if you're at all curious about how psychedelics might change the landscape of mental and emotional health, then you're going to love this conversation about Psychedelic Science 2023 in Denver, Colorado. All right, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us on the Yes Collective Podcast. Ginny, my co-host, our co-host, couldn't make it today. So it's just going to be you and me talking about psychedelics. This is the this is not the first podcast that we've talked about psychedelics. Um, we discussed it briefly with Frank Anderson when we had him on the first time. And I feel like there's been a couple of other guests where it's it's maybe kind of just been on the on the edges. Um, and this is largely because in the last, I would say, 10 years or so, psychedelics has really started to uh, or the study of psychedelics has gotten much bigger, where it started with a couple of research teams in different places. It's now just expanded and there are massive research teams around the globe studying this stuff. And I have a feeling that it is going to profoundly change 
psychology and psychotherapy. Um, and we're just at the beginning. So we're talking about it today because Alicia, you had the good fortune. I really believe it was good fortune, uh, that, uh, allowed you to go to the psychedelic science 2023 conference put on by maps, which is the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic study or something like that. Um, but it, is to date or was uh, the largest conference on psychedelic science ever. Um, so there were 12,000 attendees, 500 speakers. And I heard somewhere that it was like, of those 12,000 attendees, three to 4,000 of them were therapists. And so, the, I mean, just to think about three to 4,000 therapists who went to this conference and are now bringing this information back. So this is really just the beginning from what I've heard from others in the field. This event, this conference is going to be one of those things that people talk about uh, for years to come. Like, where were you? Like, what did you, <laughs> it's kind of like a Woodstock for uh, psychedelic science. So Alicia, you went and I want to ask first, before you attended, what did you think about psychedelics? What was your experience with psychedelics? Any thoughts, feelings that come up around it before going to the conference? What did you think? Yeah, no, I mean, just echoing what you said, I definitely feel tremendously privileged that I was able to attend this really momentous moment in history, right? At the generosity of your friend, Aaron Stubblefield, who is also entering the field, it sounds like it has a curiosity and interest as well. So I really appreciate the opportunity. But in terms of what I knew or what I thought, I really didn't know anything about psychedelics in terms of experientially or in terms of knowledge. It was something that I had heard of, you know, living in Denver and Colorado, like there's legislation that is being passed, actively being passed. Um, so this is going to be a thing, but in terms of understanding the impact that it can have positively, I really knew very little. And so I went in very naive, very curious, very open, very interested in understanding what's the field saying, right? There's, like you said, there's huge institutions, big names um, that are getting involved in this area. This is actively happening. And so I think the three to 4,000 therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, different levels of therapists there was just another sign that people are acknowledging this is being integrated into the field and we need to understand it at a deeper level. Well, so I'm curious if you, if there was a part of you that carried some of the just common biases that I think we all carry around, like this is just for hippies. Like, the, like this is, I remember, you know, people dropping ass or I mean, in documentaries, you see people tripping on LSD at Woodstock or something like that. And, and so the idea that these, that, that these substances could be therapeutic is a, kind of a, a big shift. It's a, it's a, it's a strange idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, understandably, like, I think I am not alone in the sense that I did have a part of me that had was more socialized to thinking of these substances as more like recreational type fun things. 
the healing aspect, the therapeutic aspect with something that like, you know, big name, like John Hopkins, we'll talk about MIT, you know, there's, they're putting out these studies that are showing these effects, but sure. I think like I, me and the general public was, I am, you know, I went in with um, a hesitancy of like, what is this really about? And needing to understand it at a deeper level, which, which now I do. And my shift has changed, which I know we'll get into that later. But I think also knowing that like the substances that they were talking about. So I was more interested in understanding the the impact of psilocybin, which we'll talk more about, but they were also talking about the impact of ketamine as well in terms of ketamine assisted psychedelic therapy and the therapeutic impacts that that happens. And in talking with other attendees, like even a nurse, we, those substances are used in hospitals right now, right? Like we use morphine, right? For pain, post-surgeries, you know, uh, hospitals use ketamine to help um, with stabilization, right? Of a patient during surgery. So these substances are being utilized. It's the fact that we're now talking about utilizing them within therapy, which has been conditioned to really be thought of as talk therapy. And there's the mind body piece that we're moving into is different and is new. Medications have been used in mental health for gosh, I I mean, I I think at least since the 1950s. Um, And so the idea of using medication in the mental health field is certainly not new. In fact, it has grown um, quite a lot. But these substances are quite different. And so I'm curious if you think about before going to the conference, you know, you think of something like Zoloft. Um, there's, there's no bias, at least in, convention, in the conventional mental health world, with prescribing Zoloft. You know, it's like, well, if, if it is indicated, then we'll prescribe Zoloft and the patient will take it in. There's no you know, bias. But when it comes to these compounds like psilocybin or now, well, MDMA, it is a really different paradigm. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, totally. I think from like a societal aspect, yes. Like, and I'm not a prescriber, right? So I don't, I'm a clinical psychologist. I don't prescribe medications, but I do work with a lot of people who take medication, right? And so I think the difference between the existing medications that people take versus this new area of substances is that we've really just been conditioned as a society that it's acceptable to take those medications for depression, for anxiety, for bipolar disorder, for whatever, right? It's indicated for. And I think that's where we're going with these new substances, except society hasn't caught up to that point yet. So there's naturally a bit of resistance, right? A bit of pause a bit of judgment, right? And hopefully a bit of openness and curiosity in learning, right? The positive impact that these substances can really have, right? And also the side effects too, like with any substance that we ingest into our body, there's always risk. Even with the Zoloft, as you said, right? It comes with some risk. Yeah, well, one thing that I have come to believe is that it's a big paradigm shift because a psychiatrist can prescribe Zoloft or, you know, something like that. And the 
the assumption is that, okay, I'm going to prescribe this in order uh, to reduce some symptoms and this will be ongoing and continue to take this medicine. And as long as you do those, these symptoms should reduce, but it's a different paradigm with something like MDMA or psilocybin, at least, well, I guess we can set aside the whole idea of microdosing for now, but a a lot of the studies that were presented and the studies that you that you saw were big doses, right? So this is like a big dose, a big experience. Um, you're going to be, you know, on a couch in some other world for four to five hours at least, and then you go back to your life without the psilocybin. And so this is a different paradigm. It's like, okay, you've come, you've, we've kind of like dropped this depth charge into your system. And then that depth charge, ha it, it, we now see has effects going on out months, maybe longer. The research is still ongoing. So it's a whole different paradigm because it's not like we're set. The difference for me, from what I can see, is that it's not the drug so much as doing it where with something like Zoloft, well, if you are taking it as prescribed and your symptoms are reduced, then it is the drug that is reducing the symptoms. But if you have a huge psychedelic assisted therapy session and then three months later after having no other sessions your symptoms have reduced and are remaining reduced then it's something else like it, it, it's it, it's not it's not that the psilocybin is still in their system this this it's long gone so there's something else going on here so it's a it's a big paradigm shift that is really exciting i'm not quite sure what to make of it yet, but it's definitely different. It is. It is a huge paradigm shift. And I think it's an exciting one too, because I think in the current mental health medical, which is a medical model, right? The DSM is, was created to match medicine in terms of you check off a number of symptoms, right? If you have those symptoms, you have the diagnosis. And I think the DSM can be helpful, right? But I also think that in terms of understanding the complexity of trauma, it there's a you know a number of different diagnoses that you can have to meet criteria for a trauma disorder, and it the label doesn't necessarily help you as a psychologist or a therapist know how to intervene or help differently. Oftentimes, the work is still similar cross diagnoses, and so I think this paradigm shift, as you put it, is going from a symptom reduction model, right? Like, okay, we can reduce the symptoms. And the person is saying like, well, they don't have those symptoms anymore. Can we infer they're better? I don't know. Maybe it depends on the person to a, if we can get to like the root cause, right? Get to the root work, get to the, the attachment wounds that are happening within people that we all carry. We just might not be consciously aware of. And if we can provide people with a tool to really access that pain in a way that they don't feel abandoned while they're experiencing it, isn't that the healing work, right? Yeah. It's yeah. really just helping someone meet themselves, meet them, their younger versions of themselves that are often still a part of all of us, right? Yep. Get to know yep. those parts, yep. get to see them from a new lens, hopefully a compassionate lens, right? And that's the healing work. 
And I think that was the moving aspect, one of many that I left away with this new form of understanding. Like, I get it. And what the research is showing is that psychedelics can help us do that work. They they it, they can kind of open up enough room inside to start to do that deeper work. And so you use the term the term root and and root work. And so you have previewed something that we're working on here in the Yes Collective. Eventually, we're gonna roll this out, but we're in the very early stages of working on a program that's called root work the name might change but it's going to be around preparation and integration of these therapeutic psychedelic experiences yes collective is not going to be doing the psychedelics but we are getting into preparation and integration and this is something that i really feel strongly that our that our team um, is going to be amazing at providing. But I'm going to put that on the back burner for now. So, Alicia, I just wanted to set the stage. You're going into Psychedelic Science 2023, not really knowing much about it, not having had any of this in your training. So, you know, you are, you hold a doctorate in psychology. Uh, you have uh, training in uh, hospital contexts as well. And psychedelics was not in any of your training. Right. Yes, that is correct. So I went in, like I said, very psychedelic, naive, very open, right? I, I like to think that I try and keep up and read and um, stay present with the new findings. So I knew that this was something important. I knew that this was something that I needed to understand at a deeper level, right, to be keeping up with the field. I had an openness, but other than that, I don't have training, right? In and then, you know, just because I imagine there may be listeners who are like, well, okay, maybe you didn't hear about it in your training or you didn't learn about it in your training, but maybe Alicia, there was, you know, a wild period in your youth where you tried <laughs> psychedelics. And I know the answer to this. So I, I don't mind um, asking you. No, Did, no, there was no. never a period. Like I never really had a time. <laughs> I like to think like I was pretty um square, if you want to yeah. say. Like pretty, <laughs> exactly. like a full pleasing major. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, so uh, and I just asked that to set it up again like you're going into this conference, I mean, both with yeah. your training and professional experience, nope, not there, but also in your personal life, you know, not any experience there as well. And so I'm really curious, what was there a point where you're like, uh, where, where something shifted for you? Or was it a kind of gradual thing throughout where you're like, oh, there's something here, like there, there's something going on here? I think it was a gradual shift. And I think in terms of my under, like, it, when I think about me attending this conference, it encompasses so much more than just being at the conference, right? It also was like the lead up and the preparation. Honestly, a very similar process to what we're talking about doing in Yes Collective, but also like when you really think about trauma-informed therapy and what that means, ideally trauma-informed therapy, there is a preparation period, right? There is an integration period and there is a post period. And that's, I think, the best evidence-based care that someone can get, right? And so I think understanding me as an individual, like I didn't have a crazy period where I was even interested in this like recreational, like that never happened. 
Um, in my training, it wasn't anything. But what I have seen clinically um, seeing people is that people hold wounds that date back to their early child developmental periods. Some are conscious, some are not. And they are stored within our bodies, right? As pain, as um, difficulty sleeping, as anxiety, it shows up differently for each and every person. And so I think my curiosity about this conference was if there's a way that we can help people faster, better with longer term outcomes, like I need to know about this, right? The world needs to know about this. And also, I think it was encouraging to know Bessel van der Kolk was there, you know, from Body Keeps the Score. Richard Schwartz was there from Internal Family Systems, you know, researchers from John Hopkins and MIT, like the big names were all there. Like this is exciting stuff. So to be a part of it, to be a listener, to be uh, taking in of all of the knowledge, I felt inspired, right? And also just anecdotally talking to different people at the conferences, different therapists, uh, different people who were just there because they subjectively had felt healed from these different medicines, if you want to call it. I think I found myself opening up to maybe this is the future, right, of mental health. And I think even talking to going to different sessions um, where I learned about different ways people are administering this new type of therapeutic work. What I left touched with was um, there's different groups who are doing this medicines, um, one of which is in Canada. I cannot remember their name off the top of my head, but I sent it to you. I can't remember their name. It'll come to me. But um, the way they are doing this is it's all healing within a group format, right? So people are together. Um, while they are taking in the medicine. Um, and I think anecdotally, when people share their experiences, the part that they really left feeling changed or healed was the idea that they had been seen and felt with other people around them. And I think for a long time, historically and presently, um, mental health work has really been healing in isolation, healing in one-on-one -on -one therapy. And I think one-on-one -on -one therapy is excellent and wonderful and it has its place. But I think, wouldn't it be cool if people could heal faster or at a deeper level with other people around them and to know that they're not alone? It makes all the sense in the world. I've felt this now for a couple of years that um, group work, that there's, there's something unique and special about group work. And so I think in this context as well, because so far, a lot of these studies, a lot of the clinical studies uh, in humans with psychedelics, it's individual. Um, so it, it's so there will be an individual on a couch, eye mask. There will be a couple of therapists in the room with them, but it's really this individual solo experience. There, there could, yes, I, I'm really curious what um, they're going to find when they start to study this in groups. I mean, certainly it adds many more variables to the mix. And so it could be difficult to study, but we are fundamentally social creatures. Like, And it makes all the sense in the world that the most powerful healing would be in groups. Uh, so... Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for that. 
Yeah. And I think it was exciting on so many different levels. Like you said, like I, we're not doing psychedelics science in Yes Collective. However, we are doing a lot of group work and I feel really called for the group work and the healing work because I, I know from just purely an evidence-based perspective, like there's a lot of gold there, but I also know anecdotally when people are with other people, like we're wired to connect as human beings, right? It feels good to be in other people's presence, regardless of your extrovert, introvert status, right? It feels good to be in connection with others. And I think the connection piece, the relational piece is really what healing is. Like healing is a relational experience of a feeling like I'm not alone in this. Like I'm not broken beyond repair. Like I'm going to be okay. Yeah. So this group piece is interesting in relation to the first, uh, the first scientific talk that you went to at the conference or no, the first talk that you went to that you sent me pictures from. So I asked you, it was like, because I wish that I could have been there. So I asked you to send me pictures and send me updates. And so the first set of pictures that you sent me was from a talk. I believe it was with Gold Dolan from MIT. And she does amazing work. Uh, all, well, all of her study is with animal models. So she's doing this with, with mice. And I think, I think she's, she's done it with some other animal models as well. Uh, not just mice, but, um, and what her work is really focused on is not so much the psychedelic experience because you can't t- ask a, a mouse what they're experiencing, but she looks at what happens in the brain of mice, the brains of mice, weeks and months after a high dose of a psychedelic. So she's looked at LSD and psilocybin and MDMA and iboga, uh, which is a psychedelic uh, root, I believe, uh, from Africa. And so she looks at what happens in their brains afterwards. And what she's found is that in the after these high dose sessions, there is a reopening of the social reward learning uh, circuits or a social reward learning period in the brain that is associated with childhood. And so we can learn things much faster in childhood. Our brains are more flexible, more open, neural pathways developing in new and more flexible in different ways. And what she found is that all this stuff opens up for, for months potentially after a high dose psychedelic session. So that was one of the first ones that you went to. And so I'm curious how that impacted your thinking, what you thought about that. Oh, I mean, I think the fact that the high dose of psilocybin has the potential impact to open these early critical developmental periods within the brain is fascinating, completely changed my thinking. And I think that's where I was more on board. Like, this is really something, right? Because you can imagine how much more amenable people are to different therapies post taking this this medicine. Yeah, and especially uh, in in regard to groups, right? So, I mean, if if so, if they even if they just have the psychedelic experience solo, one on one or one on two with with one or two guys, or um, that that that's really not 
the important thing. The important thing is what's going to happen in the months afterwards. And so if they can be in these really high quality uh, therapeutic group contexts being held in the months afterwards, and while this critical learning period is now reopened in the brain, this is a point at which then we can go back in and uh, we can help parts of us relearn what it means to be loved, what it means to be, uh, you know, held, uh, what it means to be seen and heard. And uh, we can do this in a much more powerful way with this period now open. So it seems like it's just a perfect time to, to, to do oh, this yeah. group work. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think in psychology, we talk a lot about how therapy can provide what's called a corrective experience right? right. for those early um, traumas, right, that we store within our bodies, right, that are happened at different ages of our periods of development. And often a lot of us are still reacting as if we're that age that that tra trauma still happened, right, because that part doesn't know that we've, we've grown, we've matured, like we 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 can help ourselves now, right? And so I think what's really fascinating about that finding of that it can open this early period of this early critical period of development that's usually only accessed between zero ages zero to five is that people who may have been more resistant to these therapies, maybe they can actually reap the benefits, right? Like if you think that they talked a lot about diagnosis such as like treatment resistant depression right? Or even social anxiety disorder, where just the thought of being within with other strangers is too overwhelming. If this could help create a window where like, essentially, the brain with its neuroplasticity could be accessed, and they could form new connections. Um, that person is going to be that much better off. You know, and that that being said, you know, I'm all about regulations and making us safe and all of that. But I think if we're just talking about the research findings thus far, I think it's really, really exciting. Right. And I think it makes me feel like. What if um, diagnoses don't have to be forever? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and truly heal from 100 percent and change. Yeah. yeah. The brain yeah. can change itself. And this is. Yeah. Um, a tool maybe that can help do that faster. Yeah, this relates. Uh, another way to think about this is the way that Michael Pollan described. So Michael Pollan, he's a professor of journalism at UC Berkeley, has written a ton of, if you haven't heard of, of him, has written a ton of really uh, popular, well-received books on plants and agriculture and food. And then in 2017, he published a book called How to Change Your Mind on psychedelic research up to that point. And I can't remember if he was describing um, the experience that one of his informants uh, had or, or if it was a participant in one of the studies or if it was perhaps Michael Pollan's experience. But what he said has stuck with me. He said, imagine every day that we wake up, it's like skiing down a ski slope every day. And we just get in these grooves and we're skiing down the same path every single day, every single day. And he said, psychedelic, a big psychedelic experience is like 
the next day you wake up and what if it was just fresh powder and you could ski in any direction you wanted down the hill. And so that's the image that comes to mind with this opening of the social learning period. Yes. Yes. No, I, I appreciate you sharing because it's a beautiful image. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's the goal, right? That, that if, if the psilocybin could create that or open that pathway so then people can actually integrate the therapeutic modality quicker and faster. That would be amazing, right? And, and that's what the research is showing, that it can't do that. So another set of pictures that you sent me was from a talk uh, by Paul Stamets, who himself is not a researcher, but I believe he helped fund this study. Paul Stamets as far as I know, is is well known as a he's popularized functional mushrooms, so not psychedelic ones, but like lion's mane and reishi and all. Uh, and he has a whole line of mushroom supplements. So he presented a study that I think he helped to fund on microdosing psilocybin. Psilocybin being the psychoactive ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms. And so I, I don't have the uh, slide up with me right now, but what he presented that all of these biochemical or biomarkers associated with neural plasticity, neural growth, uh, get upregulated or activated in participants who, ha- who were microdosing regularly with psilocybin. I have to admit, I am really on the fence about microdosing because I, there are studies out that have shown to some, some degree that, um, microdosing may not, uh, may be little more than a placebo, but the science is so new on this. We just can't know. And so his study that he presented showed that there is this neurogeneration effect that, you know, instead of neurodegeneration, there's a neurogeneration effect from um, microdosing. So the science is still very much uh, new on all of this. There is not a consensus about this at all. But I'm curious what you thought about that talk. I mean, I think it's really exciting. And I think, you know, even though there's not consensus, right, even though this isn't necessarily something that's established within therapy or within the mental health field, I think the exciting thing about science is that it's always, it's always changing. It's always ongoing. We're always integrating with the newest and the best findings. And I think there's a lot of potential there. You know, I think he also mentioned, you know, what we could do with this moving down the road with people who have traumatic brain injuries, right, or dementias, or this and that. I think it's exciting to think about how this tool, right, could be utilized in so many different ways safely, right? And I think the idea of microdosing that I took away is, is there a way that we can provide, give people less, but within a more integrated model where they still are getting these effects? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, Definitely in my, well, I'll just say when I say definitely in my experience, as I talk with just average people out in the world, there is much more openness to microdosing. Like, oh yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll microdose the psilocybin because it's not going to change 
your perception or experience radically, you'll be able to go about your day. You might feel like a slight maybe opening or a little calmness or, you know, but um, it's not going to like radically affect your day. So there's more openness to this. And then that this could provide over time a willingness to then in a safe, secure way, do a much bigger dose. Uh, Yeah. So that would be one of the benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Like, is is there a way where, you know, I think ultimately with any type of um, medicine, people are concerned about the safety of it, right? And that's something that's still being established, right, in the literature. Um, but I think even with with current psychotropic medications, they come with a lot of risks too, right? And so I think as a psychologist attending this, there was an openness of like, this isn't really that much different than what's already being prescribed, right? Um, but what's new and different is the regulations and how this is being rolled out specifically and and what that all means, right? And I think, like we've talked about, like if within the healing profession, I think you naturally have an openness, right, to wanting to know more, wanting to learn more. And healing is also subjective too, right? So what works for some one person might not necessarily work for another, right? And so I think the talks and the sessions that I really attended to is what if this is something that can help people uh, who the other psychotropic medications haven't worked for, right? And, you know, what if this is just yet again, another tool for people? And I think like, it's important to, to stress that like the therapists and the psychologists and the psychiatrists that I talked to were similar in their backgrounds to me, right? They walked into this open wanting to learn, but really didn't have um, a prior interest in this. And I think that speaks volumes too, of also addressing bias of like, this isn't something that- Yeah, it's not just a bunch of hippies who are like, hey man, let's get some PhDs so we can study this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, and it's funny that you say that because as I was driving to the conference, the parking was- a lot down there. So I ended up Ubering and the, my, the driver who was driving me asked me, well, it, is it just cause you do this stuff? Is that why you're yeah. interested? And <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, actually we had this lovely conversation similar to what we're saying now of like, this yeah. is, this is really what learning is. It's like just turn, creating this awareness of like, there's so much out there that I don't know. And yeah. am I willing to go there to learn it? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Beautiful. So then the next um, set of slides that you sent me was from a talk. I think it was like a keynote speech or a keynote talk by Roland Griffiths. Now, Roland Griffiths is maybe the most well-known pioneer in psychedelic science right now. He is at Johns Hopkins. Um, He is in uh, the final stages of a terminal cancer diagnosis. So this was a really kind of capstone moment for for his entire career and his life. And from what I understand, it was this really moving experience. Uh, Griffiths, uh, before he got into psychedelic science in, I think, I think he started to do this work 2007, 2008. But before that, was very well respected. I mean, still, still is, of course, but, but before this, extremely well respected, top tier research at Johns Hopkins, studied drug abuse or 
something around substance abuse and its effects on the brain. And then in, uh, yeah, I think around 2007, he started to study psilocybin and was, uh, and that really just changed his entire career. And so the talk that he gave at the Psychedelic Science Conference was uh, entitled Psychedelics, Spirituality, Mindfulness, and Mortality. And it, as far as I understand, it collected or it was kind of a review of a bunch of different data and a bunch of different studies that he did. It wasn't just just came, it, it didn't just come out of one study. But on one of the slides that you showed, the slide showed that one month after a high dose psilocybin session, 83% of the participants rated it among the top five most spiritually significant experiences in their life. 83%. And just to give people a, um, if you're not familiar, uh, familiar with research, human subjects, to get 83% to endorse anything is like, it's, it's just out of this world. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's really amazing. 78% said it was the most personal, meaningful experience of their life. 94% said it increased their sense of well-being, either moderately to very much. And then 89% reported positive behavior change. So this is, this is from, uh, this is one month after a high dose psilocybin experience. Um, and then he showed a slide that said, or that showed that the effects were sustained at 14 months afterwards. So they did it. That's as far as they had gone with, uh, that particular, uh, cohort. So what, yeah, how did that impact you? This is, I mean, this like spiritually significant, meaningful experiences. We're not really measuring, of course, these things are very highly correlated, but we're not measuring the typical things that psychologists measure, like depression and anxiety. This is really high level stuff. And so I'm curious how that landed for you. I mean, I found it fascinating and I was pleasantly surprised like when I when he was talking about the how these effects of basically finding meaning in your life and how they the participants felt like they had sustained finding life's meaning and personal meaning for themselves at the 14 month follow up I thought that was profound because I think you know while psychologists you know we have a bunch of different behavior checklists and measures that measure anxiety and depression and trauma and um, you know overall satisfaction. All that really is getting at is symptoms of not feeling like oneself, right? Feeling like you're drifting from your true self, feeling not fulfilled. And I think the fact that people are reporting, which, like you said, it's unheard of to get that high percentages, especially within a controlled research setting, where people, by and large, are saying like, "I do have meaning," like, "I do know myself," like, "I do." feel like I have a purpose is incredible, right? I mean, when you think of different diagnoses like depression that can last for very, very long periods of time for many people, such as the treatment-resistant depression diagnosis, right? My thought is if we could help people get access to feeling this, I think they would be able to heal themselves, right? Where that, that diagnosis wouldn't follow them. 
right? They would they would have this new perspective of themselves and their gifts, right? And that's really what therapy is about, right? Helping people become more connected to their true self, helping them see themselves for their strengths, right? And helping people continue to move forward in life in a way that feels meaningful for them. Yeah. What do you think about this? like most spiritually significant experience like that 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 is yeah. for me that's kind of mind blowing do you have do you have any thoughts about that uh you know as you work you've you've worked with many many clients over the years do you think so much of mental health is really about finding the spiritual significance do you think this is this is like like if like if if like if we could bring that spiritual significance into people's lives that this would be a major therapeutic benefit totally yeah like i think you know when i think of spirit or what it means to be spiritual i think it means so many different things for so many different people but i know personally having worked with variety of different people a lot of people carry religious traumas with them right so they're trying to find meaning from the way that they were conditioned to believe religion needed to be. And I think the idea that we can transcend and find our own personal meaning of what spirituality means for us, right? I think it's really just connecting to what's life's meaning for you, right? What does it mean to be you and your body moving through this life? And what does it mean to be connected to this earth and to other people. And I think really good therapy can help people get to that place, right? So if this can help them get there faster, amazing, incredible. So you sent me um, photos of slides from a talk by Richard Schwartz, the creator of Internal Family Systems. And so any uh, close listener of uh, the Yes Collective podcast knows that I am uh, I'm 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 essentially an evangelist for internal family systems. So I was really excited to see that there was, uh, from what I heard as well from some uh, others, IFS was a really big part of a lot of the therapeutic talk around psychedelics. Um, it's been used in. Uh, many of the clinical trials as the therapeutic modality that surrounds the psychedelic experience. So I'm curious what you thought of that talk, what you thought of IFS in general at the conference, anything at all? Yeah, I mean, I totally had a fangirl moment because I am a big fan of Richard Schwartz as well. And so being in the room and being able to listen to how he speaks about IFS it's pretty incredible. So I definitely felt very honored to be there. Um, I think internal family systems as a model as a whole is the perfect model if if you're going to use psychedelic medicine, right? I think it bridges those gaps really nicely. I also think there's something really spiritual about internal family systems. I think, you know, in the mental health world, we don't have necessarily a model or like we can't send you for an MRI to, to understand your emotional processes, right? We kind of have to use metaphors to understand our internal world. And I think internal family systems does that in a way that feels really holistic and really grounding. And people by and large feel a greater self-understanding 
quicker and a greater connectivity to others, right? Because other people have these parts too, right? The jealous, the angry, the self-critical, whatever parts. And so I think attending his talk and um, observing him during a session where it was a ketamine-assisted therapy session so he played a video, right, of of him doing IFS or what 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 in IFS internal family systems we would call direct insight. And so he is helping a person who is under the influence of ketamine go inside and do insight work, and he's guiding them as they do this. Yeah. So I think what really stood out to me was the access to what's called self-energy that was really present. And that's something that he really talked a lot throughout his talk, that what he has found throughout his work doing this type of assisted therapy using IFS is that people can access the compassionate parts of themselves, the curious parts of themselves much quicker with, with this assistance. It's still possible to access that in just straight IFS therapy. Right. But I think what was profound was how much faster the therapy is moving under the influence. In this case, he was showing ketamine. Yeah. Did he? I, I think I remember you saying that he said something to the effect that he was able to do in one session what would have taken many more sessions. Yeah. Yeah. In this particular session, he was really noting how quickly it moved in a very natural way. What basically would have probably taken three sessions. Okay, yeah. But in yeah. one session, we were getting that yep. access. Beautiful. Um, and I think that's kind of what I continue to be in awe of and curious about and wanting to learn more of, like, if we can heal people at a deeper level and help them heal in a way that's more profound, right, where these the effects are lasting longer, that's, that's what keeps me interested. Really. And I think that's what subjectively um, people are saying and um, who have experienced this. Those were the big talks that I really wanted to talk about. And so I, I kind of want to zoom out. And I think you've already said what I, well, I'm anticipating you to reiterate this. But if you just take the big view now and you compare what you, what you came in with before the conference and then now, what are you thinking and feeling now that was different than what you were thinking and feeling before going to the conference? Oh gosh. I mean, so many things, you know, I feel like maybe I did. This is still a belief. I think I held prior to the conference, but I think there's something so beautiful in being able to attend an event like this, where you're really witnessing it in person, that there are so many different ways to heal that are evidence-based, right? That are good for the soul, that have these long lasting profound effects, right? And I think part of this work is being open to this grand possibility of a variety of different ways and helping people connect to the way that's gonna feel good for their soul. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think also another thing, it was, it was exciting to see like, oh, there's other people like me, like, who are just curious and interested and they didn't go through like a, like a wild adolescence. Like they're kind of straight and narrow like me. <laughs> and um, They are wanting to find other ways to help people. Right. And wanting to learn and grow themselves. And I think that's, 
that's optionally what being a lifelong learner really is, right? Being open to the possibility of not knowing everything and leaning into that not knowing, right? And growing your knowledge, right? Throughout your through your period. And I think that's also part of like what being a healer really is, right? Being in the healing profession of like things are always changing, things are always growing and and being open to adapting to all of those changes, right? Alongside your clients or whoever to help. So the final question, um, I have asked you this before and I'm going to ask again because it's, I, I, I can't not ask. <laughs> How do you feel now about doing a psychedelic assisted session or a, a, a psychedelic assisted, I don't even know if it would be a, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy but for you to to try the psychedelic medicine, the experience, how are you feeling about that now after having gone through the conference, after seeing all the evidence? Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like after attending the three-day event, being there for you know 10 hours pretty much every single day and, and really taking in the research to use internal family systems way of thinking about this. I definitely have a part that's more open to the idea of that. Um, I naturally, I still have that kind of like safety and security and regulatory part that's like, I need more evidence. I want to see how this is mapped out, right? But I also have this like holistic spiritual part, healing part that's like, what if this is the new way, right? What if this is just another way, really? Um, And what would be the profound effect of that, right? So I think I'm still kind of in an open stance, but much more open. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming on and downloading with us. As I said before, and we've talked about this, we are just at the beginning of developing programs around preparation and integration for these psychedelic experiences. So we're going to be talking a lot more about this in the future. Our co-host, Ginny Walters, is going to be doing a training on psychedelic-assisted therapy later in July. So we we've we're 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 moving in this direction right now. I'm working on a little pilot study that I hope to be able to talk about eventually. Um, is, so there's there's exciting stuff on the horizon, and um, I can't wait to see where everything goes. So Alicia, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate this. Thank you, thank you for you know and the encouragement of going to the conference and the connection with your friend Aaron Stubblefield and and the opportunity to take in all of this and be on this journey with you. So thank you. Awesome. Hey, if you like what we're doing here at Yes Collective Podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player, share it with other parents in your life, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes Collective is a mental health movement for all parents, so let's spread the love.